Dear Heavenly Father, these are your people. It's your cross, and it's your word. Stand in front of me while I'm in, while I'm in front of them, and talk over me while I talk to them. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles with you, I'd like to invite you to open them with me to John chapter 19. John and chapter 19. This morning we're talking about the cross, just like we sang about the cross. And I have uh, three goals this morning. The first goal as we reflect on the cross is that this would be a day where you cross the line of faith. So if you imagine drawing a line in the sand, there is a time when we are unbelievers before we have crossed the line of faith. There's a time when we're unbelievers, undecided, don't know about Jesus, aren't sure about Jesus, and there's a time when we step across that line and we believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. My first goal this morning is to invite you to cross that line of faith and believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the King, that he is God himself. Second goal I have is to help you live a consistent Christian life. The kind of life that overflows and is life-giving to other people, but to overflow and give life to other people, you must be consistent in your Christian walk. You must be constantly receiving God's life and God's love if you're going to be a life-giving, loving person. So initially, I'd like to help you cross the line of faith. If you haven't yet, at least, at least give you the opportunity, at least make the offer. I'm not going to yell at you, not going to manipulate you, not going to use guilt, not going to do any of that, just going to make the offer, just going to present the option. Second, hope to help you live consistently in your Christian life. Third, I'm going to invite you to love like Jesus. I'm going to invite you to have meaning and purpose and be a life-giving person. I secretly hope every message is life-changing. I secretly hope that. I go up, you know, up here with the word and try to, try to hope that we change lives every week. I'm just going to tell you up front today, I don't do that very often because usually I do it in secret, but today I'm just going to tell you I hope this is life-changing. I'm going to show you a couple pictures uh, to help you with the context, just to give you some backstory as we jump in. The first one is of the Roman Empire in about 100 uh, AD after the death of Christ. Um, it's Rome at its biggest and most, and most powerful. And so you see the, the maroon line is around the outside of the Roman Empire, and the maroon arrow is the Roman is Rome itself. Uh, the yellow arrow is where Jerusalem is. We'll meet a guy named Pilate again today. If you've been with us, we've 
um, been in conversation with him the last couple weeks. Pilate is the one in charge in Jerusalem trying to keep a lid on the powder keg that is the Middle East in general and Jerusalem in particular. And so this is now I'm going to show you a picture of an artist's rendition of what we know of Jerusalem at the time of Jesus. And so starting on your far right, that's where the Garden of Gethsemane is. It's on the downward slope of the Mount of Olives, um, right above the Kidron Valley, um, looking up at the Temple Mount. And so that is the Temple Mount. Um, anytime you're looking at Jerusalem, it's just good to orient yourself to where the Temple Mount is. We'll see it in the next picture I show you. So I'm going to spend a little bit more time on this picture. Just I'm, Again, I'm just trying to give you backstory, context, or geographical orientation. Uh, but it's always good to know where the temple is. So that's where the Temple Mount is. Um, the governor, governor's headquarters, where we think Jesus was tried, was in Herod's palace. That was the nicest place to stay, so that's probably where Asteri where Pilate stayed. He may have also stayed in the fortress Antonio, but, um, but we think he stayed in Pilate's old palace. Now, the next one I'm going to show you is the Genef, or Garden Gate. We think this is where Jesus carried his cross to the Garden Gate and then collapsed from fatigue and this is where Simon of Cyrene picked it up. So let me, let me show you then where Golgotha is, and I'm going to give you a close-up of this here. So Golgotha, we think, if this is the right location of Golgotha, there is a stone that wasn't very good quality, so it was never quarried or mined to use in the building project, so there was a, like an old... Um, mound there where it would have been a convenient place for a crucifixion. So they can, modern day archaeology, they know where that is. It's right outside the old city gate. It's right next to um, a first century tomb, a tomb that would have been new in the first century. This, so this may be where the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea is. And there is the garden gate. Notice it is right below the Temple Mount where on the day of preparation, the Passover lambs would have been sacrificed. Covered that last week. So, trying to orient, orient ourselves to... So you can just kind of see this. We'll, we're going to read today that they took Jesus outside the city. And so this would be right outside the city. This is, as you can kind of picture it, Jesus carries his cross up to the garden gate. And then this is where Simon of Cyrene takes over. Simon is not mentioned here in John, but he's mentioned in the other Gospels. Here we go. John 19, verse 16. They took Jesus, and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him. And with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Almost certainly, we're to think of Isaiah 53, I believe it's verse 12, that says he was numbered with the transgressors. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth. What are those next four words? King of the Jews. John will not let this theme go. This is week three of me preaching 
through the crucifixion, and I've had purple up there every week. This is a theme that is a controlling theme. This is the, this is the theme that if, if John is waving his arms and yelling at you, this is what you need from this text. It's that Jesus is king. This is what it means for Jesus to be king. Please get that Jesus is king. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. So, in the ancient days, Rome never missed an opportunity to teach uh, subjugated people lessons. And so, what they would often do with victims of crucifixion or victims of other kind of capital offenses is they would hang their signs around their neck that had the crime that they committed. And so they'd be paraded through the streets like, this is what we do to murderers, or this is what we do to insurrectionists, or this is what we do to thieves. You know, this is what we do to these people or those people. This is the sign. This is the crime that Jesus had committed that he was convicted of. Being king. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription. For the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. This is what I was pointing out earlier. For it was written in Aramaic. And so, on our cross here, Aramaic is on the bottom line here. Latin, which is on the next line and Greek, which would be like English. Like, so Aramaic was the local language that everyone spoke. Uh, Latin was the official language of the Romans and of the military. And Greek was the language that everybody spoke. So no matter where you went, you could usually find somebody that would speak Greek. The point is that everybody could know that Jesus is king. So Pilate, I'm sorry, so the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, there it is again, but rather that this man said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Okay, so it's been three weeks that we've seen purple up there for the king of the Jews. That Jesus is king. That this is why he is convicted, because he's king. That this is why he died, because he's king. What's the lesson that we're supposed to learn from Jesus being king? What's the take-home that, that we have to have from Jesus being king? I'm going to try to sum it up in five words. Jesus Glory is his love. This is what it means for him to be king. Because he loves us, he lays down his life for us, and this is his glory. Let me see if I can, if I can bring the pieces, let's see if I can bring the threads together for you from the book. So in John chapter 12, Jesus says, Now my soul is troubled. Greeks have come. Up until this point in the book, he's talked about how the hour is a long way off. The hour is the cross. The hour is when he hangs on the cross and dies. The hour is his glorification, when he is lifted up from the earth. 
But he says, now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? Is that the goal, to be saved from this hour? I'm going to read to you verse 28. He says, no, Father, I'm sorry, verse 27, continuing. For this purpose I have come to this hour. Like, this is the goal. I came for this hour. I'm not going to ask to be delivered from this hour. This is why I'm here. Father, glorify your name. See, there is glory for God the Father on the cross. In this hour of his suffering, in this hour where he's naked and shamed and beaten, there is glory for him. And this is the hour that he's been looking forward to or dreading, maybe both, the whole book up to this point. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. Can you see that there is glory in the cross? The glory is his love displayed on the cross, but I'm going to get there. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. And Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Jesus is like, I already know this. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Verse 32. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, so the cross is where Jesus is lifted up from the earth, where he is proclaimed king. This is the hour of his glory. He says, I will draw all people to myself. This is the hour when he's glorified, when he's lifted up, when he draws all people to himself. And what I need you to ask is, how? How is this an hour of glory? How is this him drawing all people to himself? Imagine a man tortured to death, hanging on a cross, naked and shamed with people taunting. How is that an hour of glory? That's not the kind of glory you probably dream about. Not the kind of glory I dream about. Then Jesus prays again in John 17 about this hour. And Jesus had spoken these words. He lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. This is the hour that has been coming. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. Do you see these themes? Glory, this is the hour. This is the hour of his glorification when he is lifted up, when he will draw all men to himself. This is it. And we read about him being the king of the Jews and this is when he is proclaimed king and lifted up. How is this his glory? Well, there's glory in being the strongest guy in the room. Isn't there? There's glory in that. You know, sunburn under the armpits, walk. Think about that for a second. Sunburn under the armpits. You know, there's glory in being the strongest person in the room. Far more glory to use your strength to help the weak. There's glory 
in being the richest person in the room. Glory in that, wearing rich people clothes, driving a rich people car, wearing a rich people ring, wearing a rich people watch, rich people shoes. You know, there's glory in being rich. Far more glory to use your riches to help the poor. You know, there's glory in being healthy, being healthy for a long time. My grandpa is 91 and still goes ice fishing by himself. Not always advisable, but he does it. You know, there's glory in being healthy into your 90s. But you know, there's more glory in the fact that he has given over 20 gallons of blood. Glory in using your health to give other people life. And see, this is what I'm talking about from the cross. This is what it means for him to be lifted up in glory, for him to be lifted up as king. This is the kind of glory to the nth degree that there is always glory in being king. Kings always have the most glory. But see, he has, he, he has the kind of glory that all the other glory points to because as king, he lays down his life for his people. That's why this is the hour of his glory. This is the hour when he is lifted up because he is lifted up to save his people from their sins. It's me for you sacrifice. The king for his people to save his people. This is glory. This is his love on display. So Jesus is hanging there. And you gotta look at you gotta see it. You gotta you gotta visualize Jesus hanging there, bloodied, tortured nearly to death, with Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews, up above his head. See him hanging there. See his glory. And we read When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, They took his garments and divided them into four parts, one for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill scripture. Hey, did the soldiers know they were fulfilling scripture? No. But this is one more example of God redeeming evil for good. One more example of you meant it for evil, but God used it for good. You see these throughout the Bible. God redeeming evil for good. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. That is the fulfillment of Psalm 22:18, And then there's this glorious so in the next phrase. So the soldiers unknowingly were part of God's plan, even though they meant it for evil. So the soldiers did these things. Look, there's glory 
in making promises. You know, you feel better about yourself when you make a promise. Like when you say, look, I'll show up. There's glory in making that promise, right? Like everyone else kind of breathes, breathes a sigh. Okay, he said he's going to show up. He said it. He'll, he said he'd come. There's glory in making a promise. There's glory in making a promise to show up. There's glory in making a promise to help pay. Like, I'll, I'll help pay your way. Don't worry about it. I'll pay for you. There's glory in making that promise. You feel better about yourself. Maybe they have a positive feeling about you, that you're, you said you're going to do it. You said you're going to show up. Like, okay, you said you'd pay. There's glory in making that promise. There's glory in saying, look, I will be with you. I will always be there for you. Pretty easy to make that promise, but there's glory in making that promise. A little bit of glory. There's far more glory. You already know this. There's far more glory in actually showing up. You make the promise, that's one thing. Far more glory in actually keeping the promise and showing up. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. That he promised he'd show up. And he did. This is what we celebrate on Good Friday. That he promised he would pay for our sins. And he did. And he did. This is what, he, this is what we celebrate when we talk about how God shared himself with us in the person of the Holy Spirit. He didn't just promise it. He came through and actually shares himself with us in the person of the Holy Spirit, so he himself dwells inside us. Glory in making the promise, far more glory in keeping the promise. Have this in your mind when we think about Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is one long promise, and it's one promise after another, and it'd be a really hard promise to keep. Remember, it starts out with, Eloi, Eloi, lama shabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a long promise, and it'd be a hard promise to keep. But this is quoted so that we will see that he kept his promise. He kept his promise because he loves us. He made the promise a thousand years before and then he kept the promise. His glory is his love. His glory is his love that as king gives himself for the people. His glory is his love as he makes promises and keeps promises. His glory is his love but standing by the cross of Jesus where his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. I don't know how to tell you this, but that's three Marys. No wonder you read, you read the Gospels, and you're like, no, you, especially resurrection accounts, and you're like, now which Mary are we talking about? And uh, I just want you to know this is a possibility. I was on a cross-country team in college where there were five guys on the team. So you got that? I was, on the, I was on a team, five guys on the team, four of us were named Nate. We had to work out nicknames. So Jesus looks down, sees three Marys, one of them is his mom, 
And when Jesus saw his mother, the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, and he, I'm sorry, and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. It's one thing to serve people when you're well-rested. Jesus is not well-rested at this point. Jesus has been awake for a bad long time at this point. It's one thing to serve people when you're not in pain and you feel pretty good. It's another thing to serve people, to see a need and meet that need when you've been tortured almost all the way to death. It's one thing to serve people when you feel full. It's another thing to serve people when you've been poured out like wax. What I want you to do, what we need to do as people is we need to look up, see him lifted up, see his glory as he serves from the cross, as he sees his mom in need and provides for that need. See his glory. And his glory is his love. So what should we do? When we think about his glory is his love, when we look up and see him crucified and lifted up and glorified, what should we do? Well, John chapter 20 gives us the conclusion of the, of the matter. This is, this is the point of this being in the book. So in John chapter 20, verse 30, we read, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written. Like, this is, this is why we're looking up at his glory. But these are written, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. That's a Jewish way of saying king the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Here's what we should take from this. Here's what we should do with this. We should believe that Jesus really is the king that all the other kings badly or better have pointed towards. Jesus is the king. Believe that he is the Christ. Remember, we said that there, everybody, there's a line in the sand. You've got to envision a line in the sand. And on, and on one side of the line is unbelief. And on the other side of the line is belief. And John is saying that this is written, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. That by seeing Jesus, by looking up and seeing Jesus crucified, by looking up and seeing Jesus di dying for your sins, that you would look up and say, I need that. I need a Savior. I need to be forgiven. I will give my life to Him. That you would cross that line of faith and believe that He is the Christ, the Son of God. I 
I can't nag you into this. I can't guilt you into this. I can't manipulate you into this. I can't even plead with you into this. This is between you and the Holy Spirit. But if you cross the line of faith, do you have belief that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? Belief that leads you into obedience? Is there, is there fruit in your life that would show that you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? First, cross the line of faith. Second, John talks about abiding in this love. That we would continue, this is in John chapter 15, that we would continue to abide in his love. That we would continually look up at the cross and see his glory, and by seeing his glory be transformed and filled and become loving life-giving people. Would you abide in his love? Would you continue to receive his love, continue to see his glory? This is, this is why I really love church. It's a time when we come and we remember that Jesus came, that Jesus lived, that Jesus died, that Jesus rose. It's a time to look up and see his glory again and be refilled Again, it's also why I, I try to start every day reading my Bible because I'm trying to abide in his word and abide in his love and see his glory again because I need it again to give me life and strength again. Because I can't give away life and strength that I don't have. So I have to abide in his love. I have to be on his vine, receiving his love. I have to be continually looking up and being charged by his glory, like a battery. I have to look up and be charged by his love so that I can be a life-giving, loving person. If I don't do that, I run out of gas, and you know, it's like I end up with road rash on my face. So as, as you cross the line of faith and you abide in his love, would you, then, would you then learn to love like he loves? This is the transformed life. As you reflect on his glory and see his glory, would you then learn to love like he loves? So that you use what strength he's given you to help the weak. So that you use whatever resources he's given you to help the poor. So that you use whatever health you, health you have to help those who have less. So that, so that you, when you make promises, you keep promises. So that when you see a need, you can meet that need. Would you love like he loves? Because you're full of his love. 
look up and see his glory. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that you help us look up and see your glory as we see you in this text. Lord, help us, help us not pound down, deny your glory, but help us see it. Help us see your self-giving and admire it and believe it and abide in it and then emulate it. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.